you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 12. Gospel of Luke in chapter 12. We are diving back in, right where we left off in December in the Gospel of Luke. Um, we took a brief break, of course, for uh, Jonah, and I hope that was fruitful for you, our time there. Uh, but we are back to the Gospel that we started a bit ago in Luke. Um, if you don't have a scripture journal because you weren't here when we started it or you lost yours or whatever the case might be. We ordered several others in case you wanted one. Uh, they are on the welcome desk out there, Luke scripture journals, and those will be $4 American as well. Um, so feel free to grab one of those. Uh, but for today, we're going to be in Luke 12. We're actually going to be in 1 through 7. I know your worship guide says 1 through 12. That was uh, my fault. I changed my mind. And so we're going to be in verses 1 through 7 today, and then next week we'll pick up in verse 8. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. God's Word says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together and they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they could do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. What is your biggest fear? What is your biggest fear? What is the one thing, that one thing that you fear most of all? In surveys and polls where the question is asked, the answers are pretty typical and unsurprising. Uh, people say their biggest fears are things like heights, uh, snakes, spiders, financial collapse, mass shootings, natural disasters, terrorism, things like this. Things that, quite honestly, everyone can understand, right? And some things that, quite frankly, might lie outside of one's control. But I came across another list of fears that was pretty different from that one and a lot more candid. This list was filled with one-sentence quotes of people admitting their greatest fears, and many of them were eerily similar, even though they didn't know each other and they couldn't see one another's answers. And for this list, there was a shocking lack of snakes and spiders and natural disasters. These people said their biggest fears were things like this, being scrutinized by others not being financially successful, being left out or ignored, being a laughingstock, not being good enough, not being accepted, being a failure or disappointment. One person said I will never, that I will never be enough, of making a mistake and looking stupid, of being rejected, of going through life without leaving a mark or not being well-liked by others. These answers, aside from being impressively honest, all have a common thread, don't they? 
apart from the fact that most people would at least admit in their heart that they share many of those fears, all of them have to do with other people, don't they? And what I mean by this is all of them have to do with a fear of how people will perceive them or what people will think of them. Whereas fears like snakes and spiders and heights and natural disasters have to do with physical suffering. These other fears have to do primarily with the question, what will people think of me? Or to put it another way around, their biggest fear is the fear of man. Let's take it a bit further. I think I am on fairly solid ground when I say that the biggest fear of people is a fear of people. Sure, maybe you see a snake and you get scared. Maybe you hear of a natural disaster and your anxiety builds. Maybe you're constantly worried about finances. But above and beyond all of those, what you really fear is how other people think of you. The fear, this fear is what John Bunyan described as the fear of losing man's favor, love, goodwill, help, and friendship. All people, in some sense, he said, share this. He said that fear of man is an idol, an idol of approval. These idols, says uh, Nick Badzig, leads us to compromise in order to gain approval, to give in to wickedness in order to gain acceptance and peace. It puts us in a vicious cycle of idolatry. Miserable, miserable though it is, the fear of man is the soul's default setting. The irony of our present moment is that when it comes to fear in general, and I'm talking about our context, it's both our biggest headache, yet it is at the same time our primary motivation for why we do the things that we do. For us, we're safer than we have ever been. Isn't that fair? Safer than we've ever been. Yet, we have never been more afraid. But not only that, even though we are driven by fear, we think fear itself is wholly a bad thing, don't we? But is it? Is there a good fear, do you think? Not if our society has anything to say about it. As Michael Reeves said, when, our, when your culture is hedonistic, which ours is, your religion therapeutic, which mostly it is, and your goal is a feeling of personal well-being, fear will be the ever-present headache. The fact that fear of man drives us, and that fear is both good and bad, is at the heart of our present text this morning. In this text, Jesus is warning and exhorting us to put away the wrong fear and adopt the right fear. In other words, to see that much of what we do is driven by the fear of man and to show us where that leads and replace it with the fear that we should have, which is the fear of God, for that is the only right fear. It is the only fear that leads to right living and to life. So as we jump back into Luke, we're fresh off, if you just look up in chapter 11 of your uh, text there, we're fresh off this scene in which Jesus had lunch with some Pharisees and with some scribes, and a lunch that, quite frankly, was a little awkward, okay? He, he was reclining at the table, and Jesus called out these religious leaders for their hypocrisy. They're adding burdens to people, and they're leading people to hell. He said they were unwashed cups. They were clean on the outside, but they were dirty on the inside. He said they put heavy loads on people, but they didn't help them carry it. He said they loved attention in the spotlight. He was warning them that unless they change, they'd be doomed. Now this, as you can imagine, was not received well by the religious leaders. And they began to plot to take Jesus out. And Luke is setting us up 
for that, as this major section that we're in now in the gospel is leading and pointing directly to Jesus' death. But now in the scene we turn our attention to this morning, Jesus moves from addressing the religious leaders to addressing the crowds. However, you look, before addressing the crowds on the whole, Jesus first addresses his followers. You see that in verse 1? We are told that the crowds are swelling to the point that there are thousands upon thousands trying to hear Jesus, and they're trampling on one another. Jesus, however, he's unimpressed, as we have seen, with the size of crowds. He knows just how fickle popularity like this can be. Whereas in our day, of course, the focus of religious circles is almost entirely on numbers, and the sign for optimism is a growing crowd. It's not this way for Jesus, who responds with realism, with warnings, and with exhortations. He knows the crowds won't last long, and that a crowd is no sign of true and lasting faith. Jesus knows building a crowd is easy. He knows that eventually most of these people will fall away. They're they're caught up, right? We've seen this over and over again in Luke, in the fervor. But when things get hard, many of them just flee. This is why he never paints, does he, a rosy picture of what it looks like to follow him. This is why he is brutally honest about what is required for those who would be his disciples and why he turns first to them to both warn and exhort them and by proxy to warn and exhort us. Now, if you were asked what the first thing that followers of Jesus should be addressed about, you might say something like compromise or lust or greed or busyness or child rearing or marriage or things like this. But what does Jesus actually address first with his followers? Hypocrisy. The first thing he wants to warn his followers about is the danger of being a hypocrite. So what is hypocrisy? When we think about a hypocrite, we might think mainly about someone who says one thing, right? And then does the opposite of that one thing, right? So like someone, for example, who publicly denounces drinking and then they get arrested for a DUI, right? Like something like that. But the heart of hypocrisy, it's way more than that. The origins of the word used here in Luke 11 and 12 is the idea of acting, wearing a mask. It's to be one person on the outside, but to be completely different on the inside. To be that whitewashed tomb, right? To be that dirty cup. It's to perform deeds purely for people to see because they are detached from the internal life. It's to be a divided person, to be externally pious but internally dead. It's to be publicly one way but privately another. It's fakery, it's performance, it's a show. Do you guys see? This is what Jesus is warning against here. Says Jesus, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So before one would be quick to cast aspersions on the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, Jesus says, be careful that you aren't just like them. For Jesus, it comes down to loyalty. Are you loyal to Jesus and pursuing his way? Or are you loyal to the world and living for their approval? Are you performing deeds? For the recognition from people, or are you doing them from a heart set on God? It's like uh, you remember our friend Mr. Facing Both Ways, 
from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He was a divided person. He was one way with some people and one way with another set of people. He was someone who was wishy-washy and his life was inconsistent because he would change with the wind and he would go wherever was the best place to please and be recognized by people. He lived for the praise and acceptance from others, but he also wanted to be seen as someone who was religious. He was at war within himself. You understand? That's why his name is Mr. Facing Both Ways. Now, Jesus saw the draw to hypocrisy as a real danger for the Christian and an urgent one that must always, we must always be on the lookout for this in our own hearts. That's why this text exists, because Jesus is directly addressing his followers. And see, Jesus knew the danger of seeing the Pharisees as hypocrites and never reckoning with one's own heart in the process. See, he's seeing this danger. This is what we see this in abundance today, don't we? Sure. We, we might not have actual Pharisees around, right? But we have plenty of people who decry hypocrisy, don't we? In others, while failing to see the hypocrisy in their own hearts. Jesus here isn't warning his followers and exhorting them to see if they can spot hypocrisy in others. He's not saying, let's see if you can see hypocrisy in others. He's warning his followers to see if you can spot the hypocrisy in your very own heart. Because he knows how subtle and sneaky hypocrisy can be. It's like the speck in the log, right? Jesus doesn't want us spending all of our time seeing if we can spot the hypocrites while there lies one in our very own hearts that we go on ignoring. But what we're prone to do, you do it, I do it, we look at others and we condemn them for their hypocrisy. We say in our hearts, maybe to others in our little weird groups, look at all those Christian hypocrites over there. Over there. Because we're convinced that we aren't one. Only others are. But in the words of Lee Corso, not so fast, my friends. Let's, let's test this, okay? You guys like when I give you tests, right? Imagine if we could somehow project on this screen right here every thought or action or word that you said or did this past week or week or month or year. Every single thing you said or did, even if it was internal, or even if you were by yourself, and we played it one Sunday morning up here for all to see, what would you do? You know, <laughs> you know, something tells me not a single one of us, if it were our thoughts and our deeds being put on the screen, would smugly sit and watch proudly with everyone else. We would run out of the room. And we would find the deepest hole we could find. And we would never be seen again. <laughs> Why? Because maybe there's a little hypocrite in all of us. Jesus knows this very well. He knows that we can very well denounce others for being hypocrites while we ignore the hypocrite inside of ourselves. He knows the Pharisees are hypocrites. He just said it. 
He just publicly denounced them for it. But he also knew the human heart enough to know that it's not just a problem for the religious professionals, but for every Christian. This is why he warns and exhorts so that we may see it lurking in our hearts and do something about it. That's the whole point of this text. You know, a sermon given about 150 years ago in London about church attendance and membership. Charles Spurgeon, he was addressing many, he was going through systematically many of the excuses people gave for either not attending church or joining church. And one of them was hypocrisy. You know, that's an excuse many people give today, right? There's so, too many Christians that, that are hypocrites in the church. And Spurgeon said this. He said, ah, says another, but there are a rare lot of hypocrites in the church. What did Spurgeon say to this excuse? He said, you are very sound and sincere yourself, I suppose. I, I trust you are so, but then you ought to come and join the church to add to its soundness by your own. He said, you think the church is full of hypocrites? So you're saying you aren't one. Well, if you aren't one, why don't you join the church to help us become sounder? Well, won't your authenticity and your piety help to make the church better? That's what he said. See, we could, we could so much think there's a lot of hypocrisy elsewhere and ignore the danger of our own deceptive hearts and our own play acting. It'd be a mistake of the highest form to think any of us can ever move beyond being vigilant for hypocrisy that may be lurking within us. And the reason for this is not only because of the clear danger of hypocrisy, not only because it's a denial of the gospel of grace, but because it's subtle. It's slow. It's hard to detect like carbon monoxide. Michael Reeves says, it's, it is usually easy to spot brazen sins such as murder, adultery, and theft. But hypocrisy, by its very nature, is a pretense, making it hard to detect. Hypocrisy does not want to be identified for what it is. It poses and deceives to avoid discovery. Like leaven or yeast in dough, hypocrisy is transformative in its power, but almost completely imperceptible. And Jesus makes this clear. He illustrates this, doesn't he? He calls it leaven or yeast, and says that it lies in the private rooms, which is literally the innermost apartment or most private location of the heart. Hypocrisy is like yeast or leaven, which is commonly used in the Old Testament as a metaphor for sin and evil impulses and the art of pretense and deception. It's a great picture because all it takes is a little leaven, right? All it takes is a little leaven to spread throughout the whole. And a small amount will spread to such an extent that every part of the person is touched. And on top of that, leaven works slowly. It works steadily. It spreads almost unnoticed. Says Dale Ralph Davis, Christians tend to, today tend to assume that such hypocrisy will be blatant, crass, and obvious. But that assumption is mistaken. The tricky thing about leaven or yeast is that it works slowly, secretly, and silently. This is why leaven is such a perfect picture for hypocrisy that we all tend towards and the importance of vigilance because it moves unawares. But it's also, you see, Jesus is, is, is taking this picture of leaven like a mask, like hypocrisy, gives off an external appearance that is different from internal realities. All of us, right, have seen a loaf of bread that is rather large and then you tear it open you rip it in half, you look inside, and what? There's some bread in there, but it's mostly 
air, <laughs> right? Mostly air. That's what yeast does. It activates a gaseous reaction that increases mass, but not substance. Outside, it looks one way. Inside, it looks another way. Do you guys see why Jesus uses this picture? And why is this so dangerous? What is the big deal about hypocrisy? Why is Jesus warning us to always be vigilant that we are putting on pretenses and wearing masks? And why do we do it? Well, Jesus is warning us in part because he's telling us it's pointless. Do you guys see that? It's pointless. There's nothing to gain. Because nothing can be hidden. Do you see what he says? Nothing can be hidden that won't be revealed. You may be able to hide your true self now, but eventually who you really are will be shown. Jesus says nothing you do is actually in secret. Do you know that? Nothing you do is actually secret. Nothing you say in your little whispers and your gossip and slander, nothing even said in the darkest corners of your own heart is truly hidden. Why? Because God sees. Isn't that what he says? Nothing is hidden from him. And he will reveal it in time. So why be one way in public and be one way in private if everything that has been done in private will be revealed publicly? That's what he says. Or, or let's ask it like this. If everything you did in secret, here's another test for you, okay? If everything you did in secret, you knew would be made public in 24 hours, would you change how you lived? Would you change how you live? In 24 hours, you knew ahead of time, everything you did in secret, everything you said in your little heart would be revealed publicly. Would, that, would you live differently? In the reason we do and say things in private that we wouldn't want anyone to know about because we're confident that we could help them, that we could keep them secret, isn't that why we do it? Jesus isn't completely blowing that notion up here. He's saying every dark thing will be illumined. He's trying to give us a more robust understanding of God's omniscience and omnipresence. He's saying, you know, you can fool people. <laughs> like, you really can, right? You, you really can. And maybe you can even fool them your whole life. But you can't fool God. He sees everything. Do you care what he thinks or only what other fallen humans think? This is what makes hypocrisy pointless, do you see? But so why do we do it? Why are we tempted to be one way publicly and a different way privately? Why wear a mask? Why be an actor? Why, why be a gaseous lump of dough? But here's why. It's what we said at the beginning, isn't it? Because we fear the wrong thing. We fear men more than we fear God. We would rather have the applause of men than the praise of God. And if that's the case... And we will do all sorts of things to get approval from all sorts of people. That's what motivated the Pharisees. The recognition and the applause of people. That's why the Pharisees did it, to be seen as pious and upstanding, as role models who got the best seat in the house. They, they didn't do it for God, even if they thought they were. They did it for people, for the acclaim, to be acknowledged by them. It didn't matter if they were actually holy, only that they could be perceived as such. As I was pondering this this week, I thought of one of my favorite movies. It's called The Prestige. Have you guys seen The Prestige? I know Chuck has. Uh, that movie, The Prestige, tells the story of two magicians, okay, who are like colleagues uh, at the beginning, but they end up as bitter rivals. 
and they're constantly trying to one-up each other. One of the magicians who was played by Hugh Jackman is named Angier, and he is more charismatic of the two. Uh, his so showmanship and, and stage presence, they're unmatched. Well, he comes up with a trick where he throws a top hat across the stage, and he walks through a door and disappears, only to reappear on the other side of the stage and catch the hat. Uh, and it seems like he teleported. What really happened was he enters a door and he drops through a trap door in the stage and a look-alike appears on the other side of the stage and he catches the hat. Now the problem with Angier is since he's such a great showman, he has to be the one who sets the trick up, you see? But he must then be below the stage and out of sight for the payoff. And while the crowd cheers and applauds, he's unseen. Nobody can see him. He takes his bow under the stage. And this is what drives him mad. This is what drives him to do anything he can to be the one who gets the applause. He travels across the world. He does all sorts of nasty and evil things so he could get that ovation from strangers. He would do anything to be the one applauded, even if it meant doing unspeakable things in order to get that goal. Fear of man is like that. Because fear of man leads to hypocrisy that chases the approval of people. And it inevitably leads to all kinds of sinful consequences. It leads to compromise. It leads to giving in to things we know we shouldn't do. And worst of all, it leads us to live for people over living for God. Why? Because we fear man's disapproval more than God's. And eventually, it will all come tumbling down. If not in this life, it will on the last day when the light of God reveals all. Says James Edwards, humans are unable either fully or finally to disguise the motivating impulse of their lives. Indeed, they inevitably and perfectly live out what they actually believe. So if one believes that what matters most is what people think about them, and it does not matter who we are in private as long as we could justify ourselves before people, then this is evidence of what we truly believe in our hearts, right? in our heart of hearts, which is that we really are down deep and in secret before God doesn't actually matter. That what we do in secret is inconsequential. And that the good that we can do is not worth it unless it's seen. See, that's getting at the root of this, isn't it? The motive for hypocrisy is because we care what people think too much and what we think what God thinks, too little. We're afraid of what others would think if they knew who we really were, so we're compelled to be someone else before their eyes. I mean, really, why else would we wear a mask? Why else would we project an image of ourselves to people if we didn't give a rip what they thought? Ed Welch says, all experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. Since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not other people. Whether we admit it or not, so much of what we do is driven by fear of man. Why do we give in to peer pressure? Because we're afraid we'll lose standing with people if we don't. That they'll think less of us or won't include us anymore. Why do we join in with gossip rather than removing ourselves or rebuking people? 
why do we overcommit and make sure everyone knows how busy we are? Because then people will think we're important and in high demand. Why do we people please and have a hard time saying no? Why do we have low self-esteem? Why are we so crushed by criticism? Why do we embellish our credentials and connect every story or conversation to something we've done? Why are we so afraid of rejection? Why do we feel the need to compete with others even in seemingly unimportant things? Have you ever known someone who says they brag about how they just tell it how it is? You ever know somebody like that? I bet you have. I just tell it like it is. They say, just say what's on their mind, right? They have no tact. They don't care what people think. That's what they say. Even they are doing it because they want people to be impressed about how real they are. You see, they're rude and insufferable for the sake of being seen like they're aloof and don't care what people think. This is how insidious all of this is. They act like they don't care what people think because they care what people think. They want people to think they don't care what they think. They're, they're living for people by acting like they don't just as much as people who want to be impressive. That's hypocrisy just the same. So why do we do all of that? We give into, why give into peer pressure? Why overcommit and talk about our busyness and success and credentials and are crushed by criticism and perform deeds in public and talk about how much we don't care about what people think about us? Because we fear men. That's all that this boils down to. Why would we be hypocrites at all if we didn't? If hypocrisy is presenting to the world one image of ourselves, and this image is different than our private interior lives, then why would we do that if not because we care too much what others thought about us? Why would we be unbothered by that disconnect if we didn't fear God too little? Jesus is saying that hypocrisy is foolish because God sees all, all that secret stuff, and he's going to bring it to light on the last day. But if we feared God the way we ought, we'd care more about that disconnect. If we gave as much stock to God, seeing us in secret as how others perceive us in public, wouldn't we give more weight to private matters, whether in word or deed? You see the reversal theme in this text? The most private acts and utterances will become the most public. And it is that exposure that makes hypocrisy useless in the long run. But see, we might say this, okay, what am I supposed to do then? Show everyone what a mess I really am? Well, that's not exactly what Jesus is getting at either. Rather, the true disciple is someone who pursues holiness for Christ's sake and works by his power to more and more have a life that obeys both in public and in private so that the externals and internals match to clean the inside first so that true loyalty to Jesus flows out to deeds done for him and others. Jesus wants his disciples to be people who live for an audience of one, who are driven by that holy and reverent fear of God, which is the beginning of knowledge, rather than living a life driven by fear of people. Why? Because God is the only one who sees all. God is the only one who can't be fooled. And God is the only one whose judgment matters since he's the one who will bring everything to light. Do you guys see the madness? Fear of God should be what motivates and drives us. 
And this should thus usurp what typically drives us, which is fear of people. This is what he's getting at next, isn't he? He says, do not fear those who kill the body and after having nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear whom who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Jesus wants to know, who should you fear more? God or man? Okay. If it's man, why? What's the worst thing that man could do to you? The worst that man could do to you is kill you. Yes, and we think, well, that's actually kind of a big deal, right? And it is. But it's not as much a big a deal when the, your perspective is eternal. Jesus is trying to dismantle the fear of man by not only saying that God can see all and will bring it all to light eventually, but he's dismantling it by asking, what's the worst that man could do to you really? He says, man can't control your eternal destiny. Man can exclude you. Man can kill you, but nothing more. Would you fear him? Would you fear man more than God when it is God alone who has the authority to send people to a Christless eternity? Jesus wants his disciples to have eternal perspective, to know that what they do in this life affects the next, to live for beyond this world. Once you have that eternal perspective, why would you be a hypocrite? What gain would there be? Only those whose main focus is earthly could be hypocrites. If one had an eternal perspective, what men think of you wouldn't matter much because you'd be asking, so what can they do? They can't cast me to hell. They can't give me to heaven. What can they do? This makes hypocrisy even more silly in our American context where the likelihood of our dying for the faith is nearly zero. So what can people do to you if you don't give in to peer pressure? <laughs> or don't impress them? Or don't do what they want? Or don't people please or don't live for the approval of others? What can they do? All they can do is think things? Say things and that's it? And you're living for them? These fallen creatures who are just as afraid and nervous and insecure as you are? These sinners who wear masks just like you, what can they do? What's the worst thing that can happen? This is what Jesus is asking. Think about in a church context. This is the easiest context. How many churches have been and continue to be held hostage and unhealthy because they fear men more than God? How many leaders make decisions because they're afraid some well-connected people will run them off or take their deep pockets down the street? How many make their decisions based on what people will think and do to them if they don't stay people pleasers and yes men, but instead pursue biblical fidelity and do the right thing regardless of cost? But like, the worst that can happen in American church is the church doesn't have a bunch of money. That's the worst thing that can happen. So what? Or the leaders get fired and do we serve mammon or crucified Christ? Jesus is saying, even if the cost to serve Jesus faithfully is death, so be it. That's the worst humans could do. Shouldn't you fear and serve God instead, since he is the one who has the keys to hell? It is said that when uh, Scottish reformer John Knox died, 
and his casket was being lowered in the ground, someone said, here lies one who feared God so much, he never feared the face of man. And one of John Knox's contemporaries was a man named Hugh Latimer. He would eventually be burned at the stake by Bloody Mary. But once when Latimer was preaching, King Henry VIII happened to walk in, and he sat down to listen to the sermon. And knowing, Latimer knew that what he was about to say in his sermon, Henry was not going to like. And so Latimer said out loud, Latimer, 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 be careful what you say. Henry the king is here. Then after a short pause, he said, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say. The king of kings is here. This is good fear conquering bad fear. Good fear says, I know who sees and hears all, and I know who has saved me from hell itself, and he is the one I must live for, come what may. Fear of man makes us only concerned about this life. It fixes our eyes on the here and now, on what we can control, on what we get from people, on what will make our lives the most comfortable. But Jesus is challenging us to live for a different world. Don't you see? To set our sights on God and eternity and live in light of that. Then we'll not only be less and less hypocrites, but we'll be freer and more effective for the kingdom. God is shown here as the sole authority over heaven and hell and eternity, isn't he? Only he could cast people into hell. No person has that authority. Not even the devil himself has that authority. Even if the whole of the world was joined by the hordes of hell and it rose up against the church, the worst they could do was kill the body. They could do nothing to the soul. Only God has that authority. Now this picture of hell, this would be one striking and graphic to the first audience who heard these words. You might actually have a footnote in your Bible that this word hell is the Greek word Gehenna. Hell is being called Gehenna because Gehenna was an actual literal place that was a mere stone's throw away from the temple, and the people knew it very well. It was first used as a place for child sacrifices before it was turned into a dump where garbage was burned at all times. There was this fire uh, consuming this garbage, and this is a picture that Jesus uses for hell. He wants them to see the seriousness of this. All of them could picture the Gehenna. It's a frightening picture. Jesus says, God can send you there. People can't. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, he won't. Why then are you afraid of people again? Then on the flip side, God can redeem you and bring you unto himself for all eternity. People can't save you. You can have all the praise and you can have all the applause and all that your heart desires from people, and that won't do you a lick of good for your eternity. But then if you aren't living for eternity, that doesn't matter, does it? I came across an essay a few weeks ago. I encourage you to look this up. It's, called, uh, it's from 2009 called Inclined to Boast, Social Media and Self-Justification. It is written by this fellow named Trevor Sutton. He says, in the Middle Ages, people lived with a constant fear of death. <laughs> they never knew, right, when they were going to die. It was always before their eyes. And thus, they lived trying to justify themselves through their deeds before God. This is why Luther fought so hard to teach medieval people about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. But, says Sutton, now death isn't a daily fear. 
Our contemporary culture says there is plenty of life standing between now and eventual death. Being in right relationship with the world is far more pressing than being in right relationship with God. He says, we still want to be justified. It's just we care more if we're justified by people than we are by God. He says, in an age when people fear the judgment of their peers far more than the judgment of God, we have become increasingly petulant, critical, even cruel, and it's proving hard to take. Our contemporaries are not now primarily trying to win the favor of God. They're trying to win the favor of one another. The judgment they fear is not the last judgment, but humiliating comments on social media. But it's also what makes this the like button so brilliant, right? Because it's addictive. In it, we find justification. Well, we need to keep posting to get those hits like a drug. He says, once more, these online spaces invite us to endlessly prove that we are in fact lovable. Pleasing the unpleasable, however, is a fruitless endeavor that will inevitably lead to despair. The love of God is different. God does not find something lovable. Rather, God creates that which is lovable. Before God, our standing is not based on the sum total of our likes, favorites, or retweets. But see, Jesus isn't saying all these things about Gehenna, about hell, to bum out the disciples. A disciple doesn't have to fear Gehenna because there are disciples by virtue of their giving allegiance to Jesus, and Jesus is the one who takes on Gehenna upon himself. That's what makes justification, self-justification in all forms, whether before people or before God, madness for those in Christ. If we're justified by Christ, by virtue of Christ's wrath-bearing death, what in the world, why in the world are we putting a show on before people? Why run the treadmill of hypocritical, man-fearing self-justification when Christ has done all to secure our place far away from Gehenna? Why live for things on earth when we can live for that which moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves can't break in and steal? Jesus wants to know, in light of the gospel, should you fear man? Consider this, says Jesus. You could go to the market and you could buy a sparrow for a couple of pennies, and God cares about those sparrows. But you know what? He cares infinitely more about you. He even knows how many hairs are on your head. He cares about what happens to you. He cares about your eternal state. He sees everything. Would you fear man? You know, sparrows were the cheapest thing that were sold in the market. Sometimes you could buy one and get one free. <laughs> they were about the cost of one hour's wage. P people thought they weren't very valuable. And who could blame them? But God valued them. God cares what happens to sparrow. every sparrow there is. God pays attention to them. God makes sure they're fed. He knows precisely how many feathers they have. How much more does he care about you, Jesus asks. Why, you're so valuable to him that he would send his son, his only son, whom he loves, to take the pains of Gehenna that you deserved. He didn't do that for the sparrows. You're so valuable that if you would give your allegiance to Jesus, he not only would justify you, he would adopt you as if you were his child all along. He didn't do that for the sparrows. Does he care about you? You see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, even if you suffer discomfort and pains, even martyrdom, you don't have to doubt that God cares about you because he's sovereign even over those painful circumstances and he will bring you to himself forever and ever. 
This isn't some prosperity theology here. Jesus isn't saying we won't have hardships. But he is saying that he cares about every little thing that happens to you. That everything that makes you anxious or nervous or afraid is something he cares about too because he cares about you. He sees all those tears and hears all those sighs because verse 2 and 3, he sees everything. And he is so sovereign and so caring that he has purpose even in your every pain. You know, when Jesus says that God knows every hair on your head, his point isn't simply that God knows the precise number. That's true, but that's not the point. The point is to stress that he cares enough about his people to know the minutest details about them. But it isn't just that he has perfect knowledge of you. He has perfect love for you. Not even a sigh of yours passes his hearing. And he cares deeply even about that sigh. Now, my friends, we have come full circle, haven't we? So here's the question, yes? Is this God that I just told you about worthy of being the motivating center of your life? Is he not worthy of being feared with a reverent, holy, loving fear that causes us not to fall away, but towards him. He sees the things that people can't see, and he loves you anyway. He knows every spot and wrinkle, every insecurity, every embarrassment, and he isn't moved away. He isn't repulsed. On the contrary, he moves towards you. His love and approval aren't based on your performance or your impressiveness. His love and approval is based on the love within himself. His approval is based on the deeds of Jesus, and he isn't going anywhere. We do the things we do because we're afraid people wouldn't want us or approve us or love us if we didn't do those things. We're afraid if they knew who we really were, they'd withdraw or ignore us. And we live for that? For that? Why not live for the God whose love for us isn't based on who we are or what we've done or what we're doing or what we can do? Why not live for the God who loves us because he loves us because he loves us because he loves us? If God is to be feared, if he is our motivation for life well lived, if eternity is in our sights, what use have we for hypocrisy at all? What use have we with the fear of man? What use have we for self-justification before people? What use have we with a cowardice that would cause us to forsake doing the right and faithful thing if it would displease men because we want to please this caring, loving, all-seeing, all-knowing, justifying God. But now, we need to think once more what the fear of man does. It makes us live an exhausted life of bondage because we are performing for others in hopes that they will give us a favorable verdict. Isn't that why we do it? But it never ends, does it? The verdict never satisfies. We always need more. That's the pull of hypocrisy and the fear of man. Every day we are in the courtroom before people asking for their verdict. What slavery is that? But you know what the gospel does? It flips it all around. In the gospel, the verdict comes before the performance. 
in Christ, God renders us innocent, and we live in light of that verdict. Then we live in light of God's acceptance on the basis of Christ, and that's freedom to pursue righteousness for Christ's sake, not to impress people. Tim Keller says this, you see the verdict is in, and now I perform on the basis of the verdict. Because he loves me and accepts me, I do not have to do things just to build up my resume. I do not have to do things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. Because Jesus Christ went on trial instead. The only person whose opinion counts looks at me and finds me more valuable than all the jewels in the earth. How can we worry about being snubbed now? How can we worry about being ignored now? How can we care that much about what we look like in the mirror? So I asked at the start, what your biggest fear is. What's the thing you fear most of all? If we're being honest, it's not snakes. It's not spiders. It's not natural disasters or financial ruin. If we're really, really honest, it's other people. And that drives us. It drives how we dress, where we work, what we post on social media, what we drive, where we live, what we say, and much of what we do. And this fear begets more fear because we wonder what we'd ever do if we were seen for who we were in secret. But see, Jesus is inviting us to see the insidiousness of this leaven that penetrates all of our hearts and remove it with the gospel. To see the fear of God as the beginning of life well lived. To see fear of God as not so much being afraid of God as it is a filial fear, a fear of someone who knows God as Father. A fear that goes running towards Him and finds safety in the arms of the one who cares and loves us with unconditional love and the one, only one, who is sovereign over eternity. So in light of that truth, if it sinks into your bones you'll fear people less and less. Hypocrisy will slowly go away, and the freedom of fear of God will be your reality and motivation to where you can love, serve, and give, and obey Christ for Christ. Not for justification, if you are living in light of a verdict already rendered. Is that not true freedom? 